0: In his words, Iran crossed a red line with Wednesday's missile attack on Israeli forces in the Golden Heights. Israel warns that any further aggression will be met with overwhelming force. The Christian minority in the Jiangxi province of Southeast China have now advised to replace the image of Jesus Christ with that of President Xi Jinping. This is Unity State, where 100,000 people are now feeling the effects of famine historic transition has set off deadly protests. The U.S. Embassy in Israel has officially moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem on the 70th anniversary of Israel's founding. Well, good morning, everybody. Oh, you can do better than that. A little bit more chipper, all right. Hey, listen, um, we're in this overview of the book of Revelation. I'll emphasize overview so you don't come up to me and say, well, you forgot that verse and that verse and that verse. Sometime we'll do a more detailed study, but I want you to know we have our own form of an apocalypse this morning. Some of our lights aren't working. The guy's been working on this for hours and can't get the lights under the balcony to turn on, so I apologize to you in advance that you're sitting in the darkness, but you're welcome to come out of the darkness if you like all right <laughs> um, and I you know in a weird way, it fits with the theme of the message uh, this this weekend. Some of the other lights aren't working either. our sound's been cutting out a bit, so. Either Satan's working overtime to stop what's going to be preached or we just having bad luck today. But uh, uh, we ask for your mercy and forgiveness ahead of time for some of our technical challenges. So when we started the book of Revelation, we met Jesus in his exalted form. He's called the Lion of Judah, much different than the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The victory has been won by his sacrifice. Now he's the warrior. And we also meet seven churches, seven unique churches that were in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And even though the letter is given to them initially, it is meant for every church. It goes beyond just those seven churches. And the Lord's message to our church and their church is this, I am with you. Isn't that good to know? I'm with you. The world may hate you as you live and stand for me, but I'm with you. And the Lord says, don't bow to the world. And the Lord says, I also am very aware that there are some amongst you who are spreading wrong teaching in order to compromise and be accepted by the world. Don't give in to that false teaching. If you have, repent and return. I am the Lord of my church. i remove you, he says, if I have to, because I'm the Lord of my church, and then in Revelation 4, we went to the throne room of God, where all of creation in heaven and on earth is supernaturally bowing before God. And on the throne, we see the Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah, a strange combination of both, taking that scroll written on the inside and the outside with seven seals, and it's open. Now, if you've missed the messages so far, you can go online and you can kind of catch up with where we've been. We explained that scroll in the seven seals last weekend. And as those seals are open, judgment begins to roll out. And then with the opening of the seventh seal comes seven trumpets and more judgment. And out of the seventh trumpet comes seven bowls of judgment. And so it's the wrath of God, it's the, it's the judgment of God that keeps being poured out. And each one, I believe, is a magnification of the previous one. Not necessarily three sets of seven chronological judgments. <laughs> Otherwise, there'd be nothing left. But they all seem to be kind of magnifying each other, boiling out, so to speak. And as I was preparing the message for this weekend, I had all my notes out, my books out, my commentary out. I took one of the tables over in the house and spread everything out for a while. I've preached on Revelation before, and I just could not get it together. And I kept telling my wife, Marcia, I said, it's just not coming together for me. And and I kept reading, kept studying, kept praying, kept trying to figure out what's going on. I came across some, some teaching by another pastor, a, a theologian, M. Scott Sherman. And then all of a sudden, uh, through some of the things that he had written and his focus on these passages, I all of a sudden realized there's an elephant in the room that I'm trying to avoid. And the elephant in the room is the wrath of God, not a real popular topic. I mean, if we put this out on the billboard, come this weekend and hear about the wrath of God, you probably wouldn't even have shown up. In fact, some of you are thinking, I want to leave right now. But it's not a popular topic, yet it's all over the scriptures. And and I'm sure you have wondered from time to time, you know, why does God have to be so angry? Why does He seem so angry and upset? You probably have had friends or neighbors, or maybe it was you at one time who said, I just, I, can, I don't know if I can believe in God. I certainly don't believe in the God of the Old Testament as though God is separated by Testaments. I don't believe in the God of the Old Testament. He just was angry and upset with sin all the time. And I really don't like the God of Revelation because he's just pouring out his wrath and judgment all the time. I like Jesus in the gospel. Love, kindness, mercy, healing, raising people from the dead. And all of that is true, but don't forget Revelation speaks of the wrath of the Lamb. So we're going to, we're going to go on a bit of a journey, and I, and, and I want to let you know ahead of time, we are going to talk about the wrath of God, but we're going to turn a corner, and we're going to see also the grace and the love of God. So hang in there with me as we move through this. Now, before we jump into it, I want to help you kind of frame up our discussion on prophecy, especially for next weekend. You don't want to miss next weekend. And so if you want to draw with me, grab your piece of paper, or your neighbor's hand, you can write on that if you want, and I want you just to simply draw a line, all right? And this line, best line I've drawn all day, this line represents time and history as we know it. And so at one end of the line, just put a great big B, that stands for beginning. Now, God has no beginning, so I'm talking about the beginning of his creation. The Bible says in the beginning God was, he's always been. At the other end, I want you to put an E, all right, that is for the end of time in history as we know it, though eternity will continue by virtue of the word eternity. Somewhere along here, Genesis chapter 3 happened, you can put a line if you want in G3, that stands for Genesis 3. Somewhere in this space, after God creates mankind, Adam and Eve, they, in league with Satan, rebel against God. Everything from that line then all the way to the E becomes a story, not a, not a made-up story, the true story of what Graham Scroggie calls the unfolding plan of redemption or the unfolding drama of redemption. It is God making a way back into relationship with himself like it used to be, but even better. Along the timeline, God has these people show up called prophets. And prophets do two things. One, they will point their finger in the face of Israel and say, you're sinning against God, stop it, or there's going to be consequences. And two, often after the consequences, when God's people have their back against the wall, so to speak, and the world's beating them up, the prophets say, don't worry, God is with you, God will keep you, and there's a better future coming. You come to the New Testament, our Lord Jesus Christ himself talks about a future, a better future that's coming. Paul talks about it, and John, now here in the book of Revelation, talks about it. And when you hear them talk about it, and by the way, here's your next homework assignment, if you choose to accept it, read Daniel chapter 7 through chapter 12. Daniel chapter 7 through chapter 12. That will frame up the next couple of weekends. But in these prophets, in the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, there is a specific time at the end. It is oftentimes you can put an X to mark it anywhere, known as the seven years of tribulation, or Daniel calls it in Daniel chapter nine the seventieth week. This seventieth week is divided into one three and a half period, another three and a half period, one thousand two hundred sixty days on each side. This first period is really the time of sorrows Jesus mentions in Matthew chapter 24, one through five. This next section is known as the Great Tribulation. And what kind of separates these is the reveal of this character known as the Antichrist. John talks about it at 1 John two eighteen, and Paul talks about it. So if you want to add to your reading, 1 John is really little. And if you want to add to your reading First and 2 Thessalonians, not very long, you'll have a wonderful week of insight in preparation for our next couple of sermons. After the Antichrist reveals himself, he, in league, really, with the nations of the world, rebel against God and against God's people. That's why it's called the Great Tribulation. It's a great tribulation for the people of God, Jews and Gentile believers alike. I do believe that God has a plan for the Jewish people. That's why it says in Revelation that he seals 144,000 from the tribes of Israel, except for Dan is not mentioned. I don't believe that's a combination of of Jews and and Gentile believers. I believe God has a plan for the Jewish people themselves. I also believe that God is going to do something during the tribulation period with people that will cause them to come to faith in him. When I talk about that, I also want you to know that God is going to cut short this last three and a half years. It won't all be lived out. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 24. It's going to be cut short by what is known as the day of the Lord, final judgment on mankind, on this world. Now, people oftentimes ask the question, well, you know, Paul talks about a rapture of believers, that they're going to be taken out of this world when all this happens. When does that take place? Well, some people say it happens right before the tribulation starts, whenever that is. Some people say it happens halfway through. Other people say, no, it happens at the very end on this side of it. Other people, and I'm one of those who currently believes this. Did you catch that? Currently believes this? Because I'm open to whatever God's plan is. It's not real clear, at least to me in the scriptures. I think we're removed right before the day of the Lord. But to get hung up on the where of all this is to miss the big point. I want you now to take and draw a bunch of arrows down like this over the timeline. And above those arrows, if you want, so you don't forget what you just did, this stands for God's wrath, God's wrath, God's judgment, God's anger toward evil. And of course, we are the containers of evil, right? So we're caught in the crosshairs. We read about the seven seals of judgment, we read about the seven trumpets of judgment, and we read and will read about the seven bowls of judgment. What I want you to understand is that God's judgment doesn't just get held and and poured out on the day of the Lord. In a sense, God's judgment has been leaking out throughout time and history, continual and progressive. Imagine the metaphor, the bowl of God's judgment. It's as though God has been spilling His judgment throughout time and history is just that when you get to the day of the Lord, he actually takes it and dumps it all out. Which then brings us back full circle to this whole issue of God's judgment, God's wrath, God's anger. How can a loving God be this way? I don't know if I want to believe in a God like that. I'm not sure there is a God like that. If that's who God is, then I, I just don't believe it. Yet all of us believe it. Even the atheist instinctively believes that, that, that God is pouring out his wrath, that God is going to judge. There is a episode in Seinfeld sitcom where one of the characters, George, has this spot on his lip and he shows it to his friends and they go, oh, that looks serious. You, you should go get that checked. When his doctor tells him, yeah, that looks serious. You should get it checked. He comes unhinged and he says, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it that God was going to get me. And Seinfeld, the other character says, well, George, I thought you didn't believe in God. And George responds, I don't, except in the bad things. Think about that for a minute. It's almost like a default mindset we sometimes have, isn't it? I mean, usually when things go well, we like taking the credit for it, right? Or we give the credit to somebody else. But when things go bad, we have a habit of blaming God for it. Even, even atheists don't believe in God. Will God damn something? Will God condemn something? Will be angry at God? And they say he doesn't even exist. So there's something instinctive in our lives, something deep down inside, like a memory trace. We talked about last weekend, we have a memory trace of worship. We have a memory trace of judgment too. We know there's a quarrel between God and between us, between us and between God. It's also burned into our very conscience. In our conscience, we have this sense of right and wrong, and we have this sense that wrong should be punished. Romans 2, Paul kind of describes it this way. He says it's, I'm paraphrasing, he says it's easy to see the wrong in other people. How many of you have that gift besides me? (laughs) Very easy, Right. And when you see the wrong in other people, if the wrong really offends you or somehow attacks you, what do you want done with the wrongdoer? You want them punished. You want them judged. You want them brought to justice for what you just did or said about me or my family or whoever, right? Well, where does that come from? That sense of justice needs to take place here. By the way, when we see it in ourselves, we always find an excuse for it, don't we? It's like I can see it in somebody else and they deserve you know whatever for it, but if I see it in myself, it's really not my fault. You may be this way. <laughs> That's the human nature in all of us, right? There's also a sense of consequences. We all have this sense in us that there are, there are consequences. What you sow, you reap. If you stick your hand in the hot fire, you're gonna burn your hand. We already kind of know that, right? So. So we have this sense that when, when wrong is done, there are gonna be consequences for it and ultimately death, death. Even for those of us who are followers of Christ, even though we look at death as an open door to the presence of God, none of us looks forward to dying. Why? Listen to this little thought, it's kind of a contrarian, because death is unnatural. Though we talk about it all the time, it's natural because everybody dies. It's unnatural. We don't want to die. We don't want to go through that process. We want to go to heaven, but we don't want to go through the process of death. Yet the Bible says that the wages of sin is what? Death. It's part of the judgment of God. We all die. And no matter how we try to suppress it or rename it or think about it differently, it is the reality. Over in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. the Apostle Paul writes, he says, the wrath of God, the judgment, the anger, the trumpets, the seals, the bowls of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. It's part of life. It's part of the consequences of our sin. And so the question becomes, how does God reveal his wrath How's this wrath revealed? How's this judgment revealed? And this was a new thought for me. i would never really thought this through before. But as I studied, as I read, and i thought more and more about it, it makes so much sense to me. The way God reveals his wrath against people is God lets them have their way. You want to be evil? Go ahead and be evil then. Don't pay attention to what I've been trying to say to you. Go have your evil, and your evil becomes an instrument of my judgment, and my wrath. It will consume you. If if you are given over to your evil, your evil will destroy you. That's why you get to the book of Revelation, and you know, it talks about the beast. We'll talk more about this in a couple weekends, but you know, when I think of beast, I think of something scary and hideous, and that's how it's presented. But as we learn, the Antichrist is anything but scary and hideous. Antichrist is charismatic and attractive. Has the capacity to woo and bring people in. I don't know if the Antichrist takes strength finders, but woo would be pretty high on it. And very powerful, some of you are like, well, that's really high on my list, am I the Antichrist? That's a different message, all right? I didn't bring that up in any of the other services, but felt led to here, I don't know why. But in essence, what God says is, you want to worship the beast? You want to follow that charismatic figure, that one who promises you everything under the sand? Go ahead, and what you'll find out is the beast will consume you. You want to drink the wine of Babylon? It's going to turn into poison and destroy you. But if you really want to go your way, then God says, go your way, I'll give you over, and it becomes your judgment. Look what Paul says three times in Romans chapter 1, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. That's a scary thing when God gives you over to something. Or you get to verse 26, second time, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Or verse 28, God gave them over to a depraved mind. I mean, all you gotta do sometimes, you don't even have to look up the Greek in the commentaries. just stand back and look at life. And just ask yourself, what is going on in the world right now? What is going on in the culture? when we are given over to what we want, is destructive. We see the destruction all over the place in people's lives, marriages, families, relationships. It's a sad place to be. So that takes us to Revelation chapter eight and the trumpets. And I'm not going to go through these in detail, but I want you to take a look at them because... They're part of why I asked you, if you remember to, to read Exodus chapters one through 13. And if you did, may there be many golden stars on your record in heaven, all right? But here's what it says in Revelation chapter eight, beginning in verse seven. It says, the first trumpet sounded hail, fire, blood. Sounds like the plagues of Egypt, doesn't it? And a third of the environment was destroyed. Second trumpet, huge mountain thrown into the sea third of the sea into blood. Sounds like the Nile River in the plagues. The third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet. Great star, blazing like a torch, falls in. It's wormwood. The fresh water becomes bitter. Many people died. The fourth angel sounded the trumpet. And the third of the sun, a third of the moon, a third of the stars are darkened. Sounds like the plague in Egypt when it's all darkened outside. Fifth, uh, And then in verse 13, this eagle flies through heaven and cries out, Whoa! Whoa, whoa, what that means is wake up. Listen, more is to come. The fifth angel sounds his trumpet. Another angel comes and unlocks the abyss, this metaphysical world. Now comes these demonic locusts. The description is hideous and frightening as you read about it. They actually have a demonic God. Paul tells us, Daniel talks about this, that we live in a supernatural world, that there's a spiritual battle going all around us. And his name in the Greek is Apollyon, in the Hebrew, Abaddon. And they inflict all kinds of harm and, and torture on humanity. And then you get down to verse 13, the six angels sound that his trumpet. And it says that there is a 200 million army released out of the Euphrates. All of this is very demonic. How much of it's literal, I don't know for sure. How much of it's symbolic, I don't know for sure. But what I know is this, it's an unleashing of evil. And when God takes his restraint off evil and says, you want it your way, I'll give it to you your way, it becomes judgment, it becomes wrath on us. But it comes because of us, because of our rebellious nature and the fact that God can't tolerate and won't excuse our sin and our guilt. So when you read about the plagues, if you did, I wanted you to get the picture. And the picture I wanted you to get is that God has always been pouring out judgment for the purpose, listen, of causing us to repent. Just as Paul says in Romans, God shows us his goodness in order to cause us to repent. Well, God brings both our way to move us toward repentance and surrender to him. To jerk us out of our sleepiness and out of our apathy into reality. And yet when you go back and you look at the plagues on, on Egypt and Pharaoh, they progressed until you got to the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn. And only those who were under the cover of the blood, remember the Passover we talked about recently, those who were under the Passover blood, they were spared that judgment. And only those who are under the blood of Christ are spared that condemnation, that judgment. You say, but I, 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 I get what you're saying, Pastor. I believe in that. I'm not one of the people you got worried about. I, I, I don't have any problem, you know, reading the Old Testament, looking at prophecy, believing that God is angry at sin and the world's going to be judged. But I sometimes get upset because I feel like God's not judging the wicked people, whoever you define as wicked. I want to I talk to you and myself for just a moment. I want you to turn to a peculiar passage of scripture found in 1 Timothy chapter five, verse 24. And if I'm going too fast, because I don't have a long time to preach, you can jot it down, look it up later, 1 Timothy five twenty-four. Paul's writing to Timothy who lives in Ephesus, a godless place, being pastor of the church there, facing all kinds of challenges, a lot of unfair things. And Paul says to him in verse 24, the sins of some people are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. What Paul is saying is this. You see some people in life who are evil, sinful people, and you see them in this lifetime get their judgment, like Hitler. He was Hitler for a while and had great power and influence, and then all of a sudden, boom, judgment. But there are other people we see in life who seem to get away with murder and Never, Nothing really bad, as we think about bad, happens to them. In essence, what Paul is saying, look, Timothy, you're going to get your judgment, whether it's in this life or the next life. All are going to be judged. But here's where I need you to be careful. you got to be careful as a believer, if you're a follower of Christ, that you don't stand back and go, good, ah, look what they deserve. See, the reality is, the trumpet blows for all of us. All of us deserve to be judged. All of us deserve the anger and wrath of God. I want you to turn to a peculiar passage of Scripture found in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 13. It's one of those passages of Scripture that we I mean, most time you read it, you just ignore it, move on, because you're like, "I don't know what that was all about. It's so brief but it's so revealing in light of our context. So Luke chapter 13 with me for just a moment. Here's what Jesus says. It begins by giving us a little editorial information. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Pilate didn't like the Galileans. Even the Jews living in the South didn't like the Galileans because the Galileans... We're kind of a, a, a rebellious group, kind of the terrorists of their day. There are many people who came out of Galilee who claimed to be the Messiah, and misled people in insurrection, and brought down the thumb of Rome or the fist of Rome. And so Pilate he didn't have any problem killing a bunch of Galileans along with while they're making their sacrifices. Look at what Jesus says in verse two. Jesus answered because he he knows they're kind of asking for his opinion. He says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no, he says. But unless, and he turns around, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. So he's saying, hey, in the headlines, did you hear about the 18? This tower fell on them and they died. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, so twice he says, unless you repent, you too will all perish. So Jesus' point is this. Don't look at other people and what happens in their life and say, oh, they must have done something bad because look what happened to them. He says, everybody deserves judgment. Therefore, you all need judgment to repent and that as i said earlier is is the purpose of judgment it's the purpose of the wrath of god it is to move us to repent before god if you go back and you look at the plagues of egypt isn't it interesting that in essence what god is saying to the plagues the 10 plagues to pharaoh is repent release my people let them go but he refuses to repent. And when he gets to the 10th plague and he finally lets them go, afterwards he's remorseful about it and he goes out to try to bring them back. And finally God says, okay, I'll just drown your army in that Red Sea. You can't get it through your head. It's almost kind of the same picture here. It's like, I've done this, I've done this, I've been patient with you. Okay, you don't want it? I'm pouring the whole bowl out. That's what's so fascinating in Revelation chapter 9, verse 20. So look at it. After all those... Um, Trumpets are blown. Look what it says in Revelation chapter 9, verse 20. Fascinating passage. It says in verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Verse 21, nor did they repent other murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Now, what word do you hear twice in those two verses? The word repent. What word did Jesus use twice in Luke chapter 13? The word repent. Repentance is important. We don't like to talk about it, but it's important. God says you have to Repent. And my judgment is meant to cause the world to repent of its ways and turn to me. And yet there are those who, even as they're experiencing it, raise their fists toward God and say, I will not repent. Jeremiah says the heart of the human being is so wicked. And we see the desperately wicked heart of humanity when it refuses to repent in light of God's offer, whether God... Uses judgment or God uses his goodness? How can we turn away from God? You say, man, I don't know. I, it just, uh, it does not sound like a loving God to me. Can I ask you a question? Can you truly love without hating? Think about that before you answer it. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love my grandkids. If somebody attacked my wife, my kids, my grandkids right now and tried to destroy them, I would destroy them before they could do it, if I could help myself. Because I love them. My love for them demands I destroy what's trying to destroy them. God loves his creation, and his love for his creation demands that he destroys that which tries to destroy his creation. But here's where we turn the corner. Are you ready? It's feeling pretty dark and heavy, wasn't it? It's like, man, if I had known this sermon, I would have just stayed home. But here's where we turn the corner. Here's where we go, hooray. God's love is greater than God's wrath. Because God sees what's happening. He knew this was going to be what took place. And God plans to take the wrath and condemnation that we deserve away from us. Where is he going to put it? He puts it on himself. And so if you were drawing images on this, the most important image on this little diagram is the cross. Because on the cross, all this wrath, all this judgment comes right to the cross, comes right to the cross he bears my judgment. He bears my punishment. He bears my sin. He bears my condemnation for me so I can experience his mercy, his grace, and his forgiveness. Don't sentimentalize the cross. It is a terrible instrument. It is where God died for you and for me. It's where we're set free. It's where he takes his own wrath as one writer puts it he boils in his own stew for us i love how tim keller puts it he dies my death so i can live his life isn't that amazing that is amazing grace so I don't know how you feel. We started the first half of the message. It got pretty dark, didn't it? Got pretty heavy, didn't it? Felt a load of God's judgment and wrath and anger. But we come out the other side with a cross in the middle and we're liberated and we are treated as though we've never sinned. I want you to look at two huge passages of scripture. Romans chapter five, verse nine, that starts to draw it all together. Love the word of God. How every, you know, in the word of God, everything always meets at the cross. Look what Paul says in Romans chapter five, verse nine. He says, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him, through Christ? And then in Romans chapter eight, verse one, just a couple of you know, pages away, he says, therefore, Therefore, based on what I just said, Romans 5, 9, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death, which demands condemnation and judgment. That's what God does for us. Just very quickly, I want to give you a picture of it in the Old Testament from another another prophet named Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah has a vision of God, very much like we read about in Revelation chapter 4, but very different. I I love it because we get a glimpse into Isaiah, this prophet who is a sinner. We find out the kind of the nature of sinfulness. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. What a picture, huh? Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Now look at Isaiah's response to the vision. He says, whoa to me. Remember the eagle that flew through heaven? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Something impending. And so Isaiah says, oh my goodness, baseless vision, there's something impending, there's something terrible. He cried, I am ruined, I'm judged, I'm under the wrath, the anger of God. Why is he ruined? For I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. In other words, he's saying, I see my sin when I see God's glory and I deserve to be condemned and judged. Woe is me. But I love verse six. I thank God for verse six. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand which he had taken with tongs from the altar, the place of sacrifice. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. That's what Jesus does with the cross. He takes our guilt away and he atones for our sins so that we are forgiven. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we humble ourselves before you this day. And as we humble ourselves before you this day, O oh God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that though our story began with darkness and a foreboding sense of judgment, it has ended in glory. It has ended in grace. It has ended in forgiveness and mercy. Lord, all things point to the cross. I pray that, Lord, we would live in and through the cross. And I pray, O God, that we would rejoice in our forgiveness. We would rejoice in the mercy that's been extended to us. That when we see you seated on the throne, we would not see a condemning father, but a loving father who's removed the condemnation. We might experience the grace of forgiveness. To this end, we worship you and we praise you. In Jesus' name.